Hello. Hello. I love it when Jack introduces me. I hope, wish you could all have that pleasure because I don't recognize that guy, but um, I'll take it, you know. I wish my wife could hear what he had to say. Um, I'm thrilled to be here with you, and thank you again also to everyone who helped make the uh, conference this past weekend such a glorious um, experience. I, I, I feel like the spirit really is in this place as we were just singing. So um, this morning, I'm going to uh, speak, preach uh, about a passage from 1 Corinthians that I think you may be familiar with. Can we get that on the screen, guys? It's from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verses 10 through 18, and I'll read it. If you have your Bibles, read along. Um, I appeal to you, brothers. By the way, this is right after the salutation, so he's just sort of basically said hello, and then he's launching into the letter. Uh, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. But what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. I love that. It's sort of like an aside. Oh, yeah, I forgot. Um, <laughs> Uh, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Christ, the wisdom and power of... Uh, that's the heading. Um, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. To us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Okay, now we'll keep that in our mind, and you can keep that up there. Uh, but I want to tell you something about myself before we launch into, go back to Corinth in the first century. Um, my older brother is a, is a pastor, but he's also a DJ. He's a disco DJ, in fact. He's not interested in today's music. He's interested in music if it was made between the years of 1975 and 1985. So if it doesn't have like a vocoder or some sort of cheesy, you know, neon kind of feel to it, he's not interested. And um, we're always talking about this kind of music because it's very funny. Anyone who grew up during that period knows that it was a very kitschy, kitschy experience. And there's all sorts of artifacts you come across constantly from that, from that phase. And we, we noticed something about music that was produced in that time. And that this groups, a lot of these groups, and I'm talking about groups recording in America and groups recording in Italy and England and you name it. They would add an extra letter to their name to stand out. What I mean is that the band Video was spelled V-I-D-E-E-O. The band Clear was spelled K-L-E-E-A-R. Those who like heavy metal know that Rat was spelled R-A-T-T. So I asked him about this, like, what's going on with all these extra letters? And he uh, looked at me and with a twinkle in his eye said, well, you know, Dave, you always got to add a little something. <laughs> the Corinthians are bad at a little something. 
to their gospel. And that is what's going on. That is a sort of rather lighthearted introduction to, um, you know, Paul is addressing what some would call to be the worst Sunday, the Sunday school class of all time, known as the church in Corinth. They have really a troubled place, and they make any of our little disputes and problems, and we have plenty of them, we all know, but they make it, us feel kind of good. You know, it's like Jack giving you, a, giving you an introduction. Uh, you read about the church in Corinth, he's like, well, maybe, you know, maybe we're doing all right. Um, but this is the beginning of the letter, and what Paul seems to be addressing is a group of people who are bragging about who baptized them. They were bragging about who baptized them. So some people were saying, well, I was baptized by this pastor, and I was baptized by, you know, David Platt, and I was baptized by Paul Zoll, or I was baptized by uh, Tim Keller. And uh, there's, there's sort of a, a culture of super apostles in Corinth. And it was, it was sort of a, um, a real badge of, of honor. You wanted to sort of tell people who you were baptized by, where I got my baptismal certificate. And, you know, religious identity markers like this, they're common. We, we do this all the time. I go to this church, not that church. I'm this kind of Christian, not that kind of Christian. You know what I'm talking about. We are, define ourselves by our affiliations, by our affiliations. And uh, in here, we're, of course, we're having, it's not just who baptized them. When they talk about who baptized them, they're talking about who their leader is. So he's speaking to a context where people are divided by who they consider to be their leader. So it's not that different from, you know, our, our current context, whether in the church, without, outside the church, right? And it makes Paul upset. And why does it make Paul so upset? Well, it's because he believes they're adding something to the gospel itself. It's not only Jesus Christ and the grace of God and the forgiveness of sins. It's Jesus plus I got baptized by Bart. Well, that, would be, that wouldn't be Jesus plus. I'm kidding. No, but it's Jesus, it's Jesus plus. I love this man. I think you all are very fortunate to have him as a pastor. I got to get to know him a little bit yesterday. Um, but it's, I, I, it's Jesus plus I go to this church, the right church. I come from the right family. I have the right political, you know, beliefs. I have the right affiliations, the right stickers on my car, the right kind of car. The truth is we're always looking for something to add. And yes, something of our own. We want something of our own that we can add to the gospel. It's not just true in religion, but it's true in life. We want to add something more in order to be something more. I call this the tyranny of more, the tyranny of more, and it reminds me of this new book came out last uh, in November called America the Anxious, How Our Pursuit of Happiness is Creating a Nation of Nervous Wrecks. It's a really uplifting read. Um, it's written by a British lady who moved to California and, uh, with her family and was just dumbstruck by the American obsession with happiness, and the, or at least the way we talk about happiness versus how British people talk or actually don't talk about happiness as the, the sort of be-all, end-all of life. And uh, she said that she noted that the same questions would come up repeatedly in conversations. She recalls these questions. Am I happy? Am I as happy as my neighbor? Am I as happy as my friends? Am I as happy as everybody on social media, on Facebook? Could I be happier if I tried harder, if I tried this other strategy? if I was with this other person? 
She said there was a real anxiety about being as happy as you could be. And from where she was sitting, she said it was a sunny Californian equivalent of what economists call the local ladder effect when it comes to what, how much money you make. Uh, the local ladder effect says that having a higher salary won't actually make you happier, but making more money than your friends will. This is e economists. They never lie. We know that. Um, so what she's noticing is that in America, in America, to be happy is to be happier than one's peers, to be more happy rather than just to be happy. And this compulsion, I think, to maximize our happiness ends up, as what Whitman says, is that it's creating its opposite. She actually cites a study where the higher that people said that they rated happiness, the, the higher they rated happiness as a personal ambition, the less happy they were. And the more likely they were to experience symptoms of dissatisfaction, even depression. You know what I'm talking about. It's the Verizon commercial. Am I happy now? What about now? Am I happy now? How am I happy? That, that sort of self-consciousness turns a person inward. And we as Christians know that when you're turned that far inward, you, um, you're, 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 you're usually turned a, away from God. You're not looking up. You're looking at your belly button. You're self-conscious like a teenager who's always wondering how... How they look, you know, always shifting. Am I happy now? Am I happy now? Indeed, an international comparison study of the moment-to-moment -moment happiness of people living in different nations ranked America, this was last year, at an underwhelming 25th in the world. Two spaces behind Rwanda, which has been dealing with major genocide. So that doesn't say good things about our culture. It doesn't say things about America. It doesn't say good things about, you know, this is, these aren't just non-Christians being polled, by the way. It's, it's, it's the whole, it's, it's everyone. Now, what we see with the Corinthians is that we can take, even if we, when we start to add something to the gospel, when we start to make the gospel a matter of more, or religion a matter of more, even if it's something good like baptism. Baptism is great. Baptism is, who is the person that brought Christ into your life? Who is the, where is, where is the, 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 the face uh, through which you first heard the, uh, the words of eternal life? Who is the face who, who, you know, gave you hope when you had none and, and, and brought you to church for the first time? Or who is the person who has been uh, God's instrument in your life? That's a good thing. Who would ever say that's a bad thing? And yet, the human spirit, or the sinner in us, uh, has an impulse to always add more and take something, even the good things, the best things, and turn them into a new venue of comparison. If the Corinthians, if we're taking this at face value, because that's what they've done, the impulse to add something more, in other words, creates something less. Here it creates less unity, less cohesion, less love, less worship. So our first lesson here, I believe, is that something good will become a vehicle of division, can become a vehicle of division, to the extent that it becomes a vehicle of more, more, becomes a new ladder. We love ladders. We're, you know, John Calvin famously said that the human heart is a factory for idols. I think you could just call it a factory for ladders. It's a ladder factory. I can take something like baptism and make it so it's a ladder so I can see how much higher I am than the guy who was baptized by Tim Keller, right? Do you guys not know Tim Keller? 
he's a Presbyterian, so I don't, I don't know if they, where they, when they baptize. Um, you have to ask him. Um, but we can take anything. We can take good things. We can take, you know, money, beauty, wealth, uh, sorry, uh, you know, uh, goodness, uh, charity. Uh, we can take uh, youth. We can take all these things and turn them into ladders of comparison. And uh, it is, it is a, actually a huge driver of our unhappiness when we, when we get into this. But we can take anything and look into it as, as a vehicle for more. Now, one thing you notice when you're on that ladder, and many of you are on some kind of ladder. It may not be the world's ladder. It may be the church's ladder because we bring our ladders into the church. Um, is that it gets longer the higher you climb. The higher you climb, the longer it gets. It feeds on himself. Even in relationships, you know if you've got a relationship where uh, in order to uh, get love from someone, you need to um, climb the ladder they put in front of you. You need to constantly be giving more, doing more, being more. You know that even, when, even on those days when you are the perfect husband, the perfect wife, you know that it's not enough because you get to start again the next day. We, of course, project this onto God, and that's where we're going to go there, but not yet. What you see is that ladders feed on themselves, ladders of, of law and achievement. I was reminded of this with a really interesting article that appeared in The Guardian a couple of weeks ago. We talked about uh, what happened in the 19th century in America and Western Europe is that there was this explosion of labor-saving devices in the home. I'm talking about vacuum cleaners and irons and washing machines. And uh, it transformed the lives of housewives and domestic servants. Excuse me. Technology now meant that washing clothes no longer entailed a day bent over a mangle. I had to ask someone what a mangle was. Anyone here know what a mangle is? Like, okay. Four people know what a mangle is. Apparently it's this enormous contraption that you would sort of use to iron things out, and it was really hot, and you would have to do this over and over again until, like, washing clothes, if you were folding linen or something like that, was just the most... The, if you think it's arduous now... Think about it with a mangle. It even sounds like a torture device. <clears throat> but a vacuum cleaner all of a sudden could render a carpet spotless in minutes. But the historian Ruth Cowan said something super interesting about this in her book, More Work for Mother. The result for much of the 20th century was not an increase in leisure time among those who did the housework, downtime, free time. Instead, as the efficiency of housework increased, so did the standards of cleanliness and domestic order that society came to expect. Now that the living room carpet could be kept perfectly clean, it had to be. Now that clothes never needed to be grubby, grubbiness was all the more taboo. Now, you take that into 2017, think about it, your relationship with your device. We thought that these would save us time, give us more time, these phones, for, for, for spending time with our family, for hanging out, for doing nothing. Instead, when you are accessible 24-7, you need to respond 24-7. You know what I'm talking about. How many of you have recently gotten an email from someone who sent it at 5.30 in the morning or 2 a.m.? Now that you can respond, maybe you've got this sort of job. I hope you don't, but I know people that do. Now that you can respond at 11 at night, you have to. So the ladder, we have... Ladders we construct don't work. They're like, uh, they're like one of those uh, clown ladders where you keep going and you keep falling down. You know what I'm talking about from like Laurel and Hardy? 
But let's go further because we still like to think, okay, maybe that's true in my case, but they're still a top of a ladder. You can't tell me that Bill Gates or, you know, or I don't know who it is for you, Nick Saban, maybe, who is, who is, who is it? Um, there is no such, in fact, he's an amazing illustration that there's no such thing as the top of the ladder. It's a fiction. We all fall off the ladder eventually, if not in through some sort of failure, then through our own physical death. But talk to those who occupy the top spot for a little bit, and they find that it doesn't deliver. In fact, people at the top of the revenue stream are much unhappier, generally speaking. They answer lower on this whole stuff I was talking about. I saw this with like, you know who, Mar- anyone know who Marcus Person is? If you have a young, uh, young man in your life, you probably, you, you actually know all about him. He is the guy who created Minecraft. Okay, thanks a lot. Um, he's a billionaire. He's a Swedish guy. And Minecraft is everywhere. Go into Walmart, go into Target, go into any second grade classroom in the country and you're going to see a lot of Minecraft stuff. I still don't know what it is, but that's just because I'm getting old. But uh, right after he sold his company, right after he sold Minecraft, he went to Ibiza, which is like the party central place for a lot of Scandinavians and Europeans, and he tweeted a bunch of stuff at, uh, in the middle of the night. Two weeks after this sale, after he becomes a billionaire, 4.48 a.m., The problem with getting everything is you run out of reasons to keep trying, and human interaction becomes impossible due to imbalance. 4.50 a.m. Hanging out in Ibiza with a bunch of friends and partying with famous people, able to do whatever I want, and I've never felt more isolated. We still don't believe that. We still wish we had the billion dollars. I'll be unhappy and have the billion dollars rather than not. Um, But still, the ladder doesn't work. It's a fiction. It's a fiction. Uh, It is a very powerful one. But this also happens with our faith. We think that we make the life of the Christian faith in in the gospel into climbing a ladder, into doing enough, being enough, reading our Bible enough, praying enough, uh, you know, having enough faith even. You know, it's my fault. I just didn't have enough faith. Or if you only had enough faith, well, then your life would sort out. But when we make religious practice, spiritual life practice, into a matter of more, what happens is we turn God into something he is not. I read this quote yesterday to the guys, but I'm going to read it again because it's from Martin Luther, and I'm on a bit of a kick right now because it's the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. This is the great theologian from Germany, 1517. He wrote, men fast, pray, watch, suffer. They intend to appease the wrath of God and deserve God's grace by their exertions, but there is no glory in it for God because by their exertions, these workers pronounce God to be an unmerciful slave driver, an unfaithful and angry judge. They make a liar out of him. That's a heavy thing to say. But when you are climbing that ladder, oftentimes what it constitutes, whether you mean it to or not, is a self-centered refusal to believe that God's approval of you in Christ is full and final. So what's Paul's response here? What's Paul's response to these Corinthians who are addicted to more and are, are divided and are adding? 
Well, first of all, he says something that no minister has ever said in the history of the world. He says, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you. That's never happened through any pastor I've ever met. You want to have baptized as many. When I first went into ministry, one of my friends from college said, so, like, do you guys get a bonus when you convert someone or, like, when you baptize someone? Like, uh, I said, no, but we should. That'd be great. Um, well, people, I mean, at our church at least, we only do baptisms once a month, but it becomes a, you know, something you report on your annual report when you say, oh, there were 57 baptisms here this year. That's new Christians. That's incredible. You will praise God for that. And yet Paul's saying, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you. So we should look up. What is he, why would he say such a thing? Well, um, he says that he, uh, he's glad because Christ is not divided. I wouldn't want to play into your ladder climbing, add more, divide yourself from other people's superiority Christian scheme. I want no part of it. That's not the gospel that you heard from me. It was not a matter of more. You know, this word, it could be enough for a sermon to hear that is Christ divided rhetorically, as if that's the silliest thing in the world. Christ is not divided. Everything else is divided. Our country is divided between blue and red, between black and white, between male and female. We are divided from people that we love, people who are estranged brothers and sisters, parents. We are, in fact, divided within. We know what we should do, and we don't do it. We're all, a lot of people's internal life is, is a conflict. We have the person we are at church on Sunday and then the person we are the rest of the week. We have the person we are with our kids and the person we are with our wife. We have a person we are when no one's around. Division is such a fact, a sad fact of life. And to say that Christ is not divided. Unlike everything else in life, Jesus Christ is not divided. That's, that's an amen kind of statement, I think. I, don't use, I haven't preached in a church where people say amen, so I wanted to get that out of the way. But he wants to say this. He goes even further to say, I did not, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Now, I'm glad this isn't officially a Baptist church because that's an offensive statement to a lot of Christians. Um, we're we're Bapticostal, that's what I was told. I love this place. Um, but he's, he's sort of subordinating baptism, which is the most amazing gift, to the preaching of the gospel. Because... Paul is trying to hammer the point home that what matters in life is not who you are affiliated with, but who has affiliated himself with you. I'll say it again. Not who you have affiliated yourself with, but who has affiliated himself with you. And that's what baptism is actually about. But then he says something that is radical, even more radical. And he'll go on in the rest of Corinthians, the rest of this chapter at least, to expound on it. He says, for the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. There's something deeply counterintuitive going on in the gospel that makes it so resistant to the more. In fact, to those who hear about the cross, about the crucified Savior, the world, 
they sounds like that's utter foolishness. Why would I want a part of that? I'm interested in the more. Give me the billion dollars on the vacation in Ibiza. But to those who are being saved, in other words, to those who've fallen off the ladder, or not even fallen off, for those whose ladder has collapsed and they haven't even told anyone, and all of our ladders are collapsing. They can't. That's, that's, what, that's what things that are made of human hands do. Well, then it's the power of God unto salvation. What he's saying is that those things that you think make you exceptional or righteous, not special, but righteous, are often spiritual impediments and that those are the things that convince you you don't actually need God. Those are the place where you're relying on yourself. But those things about you, those wounds and weaknesses and hurts and sin that make you less than others, well, that is where you actually come to appreciate God's love, his largeness, his one-way, omnidirectional or monodirectional uh, laser beam on the sinner. Well, that's where you appreciate that all the more. That's where God is glorified. That's where... He increases and you decrease. And that's what freedom looks like and feels like. That's what unites us in the body of Christ. Our collective need for a Savior. Collective need for Jesus. I'll give you a couple of closing illustrations, a couple of, a couple of pictures here. A couple of weeks ago, I read in the newspaper an amazing profile of a guy named B.J. Miller. He's a palliative care doctor, which means he works in hospice and people who are dying, uh, and a triple amputee, triple amputee. And he works in San Francisco. He lost his limbs uh, climbing on an abandoned railway car uh, when he was in college. And it was still, uh, electricity was still going through it. He got zapped and flew 30 feet. And uh, in what ensued, he lost both of his legs and one of his arms. And he, the article said something, reported what happened to him after that. Said for a long time after the accident, which he lost his arms and legs, his arm and legs, no visitors were allowed in his room. The burn unit is a sterile environment. No one can come in. But on the morning that his arm was going to be amputated, a dozen friends and family members packed into the 10-foot-long corridor between the burn unit and the elevator just to catch a glimpse of him as he was rolling to surgery. Miller remembers thinking, they all dared show up. They all dared to look at me in my wounded state. They were proving that I was lovable even when I couldn't see it. They were agents of grace in his life. And this is what happens when grace uh, happens to you, of being loved in your darkest, your ugliest, your most despondent, the place where you feel most abandoned and embarrassed and ashamed. And you're loved in that place, which is where God loves you. you a passion is often birthed for caring for others when they're in that place. This is where real ministry flows from. Um, he says later on, he says, you know, parts of me died early on. But that's something one way or another we can all say. I 
got to redesign my life around this fact. And I can tell you it has been a liberation. The article goes on to quote some other physicians who are talking about BJ and uh, his impact on people. They say that you know from seeing him standing in front of you when you're dying, when you're, it's a terminal illness, you know that he has suffered. You know that he has been to the brink of the abyss that he's talking about. That gives him an authority others may not have. He's a wounded healer. And his wounds are the means not only of his own personal liberation from the ladder of doing and being more, but the channel through which he actually reaches his, his patients. It's like Christ standing before Thomas. Touch and see, feel the wounds. This is why the risen Christ has his wounds. Uh, and if it some sounds somewhat like Christ-like, well, a friend mid notes midway through the article that it's impossible to describe what, what it feels like to be with Miller. People feel accepted. I think they feel loved. In other words, he comes to them in his subtracted form, and he imposes no more. There's no more. And yet, you think about it, and no one would ever ask for what's happened to him. You know what I'd like? I'd like to, you know, have three of my appendages amputated. Of course not. That's foolishness. And yet, it is the best thing that ever happened to this man. What looks like the worst thing ends up being the best thing. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is a thin echo of our Lord, Jesus, who though he could be, have been, and is, and will be more, he became less, born as a baby, then submitted himself to suffering, humiliation, and death, the foolishness of the crucifixion, where the power of God was revealed. Because make no mistake, the cross contradicts the assumptions we normally have about life. It says that God is most reliably present, not in our strengths or successes or the things we like best about ourselves, but God is present and working in the world exactly in the place where a person is falling apart, where they are discovering the limits of their power instead of its possibilities. It means that God is always involved with people and situations exactly as they currently are instead of as they could be or might be or used to be. You know, the New Testament is shot through with this theme. We see it in Jesus' preference of sinners, outcasts, hypocrites, in his humble and unexpected origins, in his teaching that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. It is also severely, particularly present in St. Paul's word about knowing nothing but Christ crucified, about his insight that God's power is made perfect in weakness, that's where we come back stronger, gentlemen. This is the peace that comes not through losing, but through dying, which is what happens when you're baptized. We talk about being reborn, but you know what happens first? You go under the water. You die. Then you come back up. Now, this is... Um, uh, we can't talk about this kind of baptism without talking about the baptism that Christ went through. Not his first baptism, but his second one. The one when he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how constrained I am until it is accomplished. 
when he talks to James and John and says, are you prepared to be baptized with, with the baptism I'm about to be baptized with? That's a lot of baptisms. Uh, this is not a baptism of failure like I'm talking about. It's not a baptism of transgression. It's a baptism of fire. This is the Jesus who doesn't disregard the judgment of the law, of God's perfect standard of holiness. For our, he doesn't disregard it for our less uh, than healthy priorities, but he allows it to fall on him. He allows himself to be divided from the Father. You see, because of the cross, uh, it's the Jacob's ladder. It's there, he's coming down, not you going up. It's a new kind of ladder. And we find that he's not actually the man at the top of it, but the man at the bottom. The friend of sinners, the savior of those in need of one. I got one last story for you, and then I'll close. Maybe you read the book, When Breath Becomes Air, written by Paul Kalanithi, a 36-year-old neurosurgeon at Stanford who was diagnosed with stage 4 lung cancer right after his first child was born, his daughter. And he wrote a book-length letter to her, and it made a lot of uh, waves this past year. It's a really incredible book, but have your Kleenexes ready. And he talks about his love for his daughter. This is how he closes it. Remember, this is the baby who hasn't climbed any ladder, who's just there, who's just there. He says, when you come to one of the many moments in your life when you must give an account of yourself, provide a ledger of what you have been and done and meant to the world, do not, I pray, discount that you have filled a dying man's days with a sated joy a joy unknown to me in all my prior years, a joy that does not hunger for more and more, but rests satisfied. In this time, right now, that is an enormous thing. And so you this morning, what ladder are you climbing up? Where are you clamoring for more? Where are you asking someone for more? Where are you asking God for more? Where is more being demanded of you? And where are you impaired? Where are you missing that appendage? Where are you weak? Because if you hear anything from me today, hear this. The gospel is not about adding anything, but about being added to something. It does not have to do with lining up your affiliations but with the God who is undividedly loyal to you despite your disloyalty to him, who instead of looking at you and saying more, looks at you and says, mine. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this foolish word of the cross for your son who came down that ladder and comes down to it this morning. We ask that you would save us from our divisive, boasting ways, that we might come to know your peace and your grace and your approval in a deeper, more lasting way this morning. We pray for love uh, for those who 
seem to represent more. We thank you that you became less. And we praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, he wants to hear people.